Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this week's podcast episode, I'm talking with Aspjörn Malte Söndergaard, the founder and CEO of Tactile Games. who are based out of Copenhagen, Denmark and are the makers of the hit game Lily's Garden. In this discussion, we talk about how company culture has developed at Tactile over the years, how new projects get started, and what kind of role does celebrating success and failure play at Tactile. This podcast is sponsored by Zebedee. Zebedee lets you power your games with Bitcoin to add play-to-earn mechanics quickly and easily. You can now introduce tiny, lightning-fast micropayments that work natively in-game, something that wasn't previously technically or financially possible. The result is higher engagement from players, more time spent in-game, and more efficient use of your marketing budget. The best part is, you don't need to learn all the ins and outs of blockchain to use Zebedee, or to worry about managing all the financial hurdles. Their custom SDK and API let you easily add Bitcoin rewards into the games you're working on or the ones you've already created. You're limited only by your imagination. And the polished developer dashboard gives you direct visibility into the impact that your in-game payments are having. Zebedee handles all the rest. By building infrastructure on top of the Bitcoin protocol, Zebedee is creating interoperability between developers and studios, allowing the entire games industry to share in the same open standard for sending and receiving value. Head on over to zeb.gg forward slash egd to learn more and to sign up for access. All right, we're recording. Hi, Asbjörn. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing, man. So much to talk about for the entrepreneurs listening out there. Share a bit of knowledge today. So I wanted to to kick things off and ask you if you could share your origin story and how you made your way into gaming and to to found Tactile. My interest in gaming actually maybe comes from a maybe different angle from uh, from many. It's I've been very interested from when I was uh, studying back at university in the management of complex software projects and basically solving complex problems. And when I was graduating back in 2005, I guess, then there was really two options. If you wanted to work on a, maybe it's, it's difficult to believe now, but if you wanted to work on a project with 30 plus programmers back in the days, then there's really only two options. You could do AAA gaming or you could do uh, baking software. And, uh, and I'm not really much of a, I couldn't really see myself working in a bank. So then it became uh, games and I started out working um, in, in AAA gaming initially at a company called Crytek that, that did first person shooters back in the days. Was that the inception for you to, to then go and found your company? How that did, did that thing happen? After spending a couple of years in, in AAA, there was really two things that, and, and I was leaving Crytek and I was interviewing in a couple of places and I was really seeing the same problems to be fair to some pipelines that were not really poorly managed and and a lot of overwork and a lot of belief from high level management that that the way to do it was just to push harder and i could not really see myself 
doing that again. So that was part of me thinking there must be something else. And, and I, I wanted to create something different where if you create the pipelines probably from the get-go and, and thought more about delivering in incremental steps, then uh, you could make a much better both working environment, but also better products. So again, context, this is in, I guess, 2007, 2008. Back then where, you know, agile development, uh, scrum, things like that was not something that was commonly known both in the software industry and in gaming in general. One of the reasons why I started the company was basically I wanted to create an environment where we would do interesting things, work with interesting technology, and have, a, from a management point of view, more um, holistic is probably the wrong word, but development-focused approach to how we would solve productions. And obviously, this sounds extremely grand when you are a, a company of uh, back in the days, I guess we started out being four or five people. So it started out, and, and, and also back, in the, back then, getting funding for a gaming projects, you know, people would just laugh at you. So I started Tactile, I remember 1st of August, 2008, and Lehman Brothers, they went bankrupt, I think on the 3rd of September. So a month after, and I was trying to raise money. So people were both laughing at you because you were a gaming company, because they never heard about anything that would like an investment into game was insane in the first place. And then they didn't really have any money anyways, because the way the market was. So that left left us basically to try to find a different strategy, which which was bootstrapping the company. So all these ideas of how um, a manage a company should be managed and and how we would develop things differently, obviously uh, didn't get off as as fast as I would have liked it to be. And and also in this process, we shifted or I shifted the company focus from from initially it was the idea it would be PC potential console. To, uh, to doing mobile because that's what we could do with with the limited resources we have being a bootstrap company. Yeah, so that's kind of, that was the start of, of Tactile. Yeah. Eddie, can you introduce the company now in your own words? Like, I want to ask you a lot more about Tactile, but just to get sort of like the foundation here for the listeners about what is Tactile Games. High level, Tactile develops and publishes casual puzzle games for mobile. And we've been, yeah, we've been focused exclusively on on match three games for the last eight years. We are roughly 260 people in how many locations? In Copenhagen, UK, Spain, and Argentina. Yeah, that's the short intro to the company. And then going back into that moment of 2008, 2009, I remember myself fundraising as well and managing actually to get one big angel and his sort of personal fund to invest into my startup saying yes in December 2008 and nobody else was even like close to looking at us and caring about us yeah Yeah. (laughs) and it it gave us like several years more runway and uh, saved the situation back then I learned learned so much more from that but like how did you then start building a company in the early days first off like did you manage to raise did you bootstrap and how did you get into this incremental steps approach versus like crunch and pushing harder? But let's let's start on the, the fundraising side. No, I mean, so we didn't uh, raise funds until I think 2012. And then again in 13 from the angel we have on board now. And so that's kind of, so, so on between eight and 12, I actually 
funded it myself. I took a loan in my house, and then I was working. Um, I was working as a lean consultant. I'm I'm very much into to lean, both lean software development, but in lean in general. And so that was kind of funding the initial development of our first um, iPad, iPhone games. Yeah, and then after we published the first couple of projects, then we worked with publishers to for them to fund the projects, and then it was on a revenue share and. Yeah, so that that was kind of that was the early stages of the company, and then it wasn't until 2013 when we took on the last uh, you know angel investment from it's the same angel that we used that money to then fund our own project and and go back to uh, self publishing. That's also and that in connection with that, I also uh, my my two co current partners or co founders they also joined the company, and and then we decided to exclusively focus on on cash deposit. Is that a, a possibility? that fundraising helped and you didn't really need to think about like, oh, we need to go back to to working on external projects or was it like a, a point where the company actually like then stayed on track to, to go into the success that you guys have now? I mean, success stories, they always uh, told in retrospect, right? So but but the matter of the fact is that actually the, the angel we had at the time he was he was very supportive and actually also funded us with a couple of loans you know, going from our the first game which was actually not a casual puzzle game it was an endless runner that that we did with the, the the funding we got from him it did make money but it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna be a long term thing we could see that and he um, he helped us to bridge the next game we did which was the first puzzle game we did it's called be brilliant and to be honest, if we'd known what we know today now and the KPIs we had that game, we should just have raised a, a shit ton of money and invested. But we didn't have the experience, unfortunately. But but uh, it's brilliant to this day. It's still one of the, the projects we've had that had the best KPIs when we launched. We just didn't know that they were so good. So, but but from that point on, we we basically had been um, profitable, yeah, and have grown from there. Talking about the the point you brought up earlier, this culture of pushing hard and crunching and how did you build up your company culture and how has it evolved over the years? So first of all, I think the ethos of the company starts with with how the founders they approach it, especially when you are when you're a small, small team. And one thing that's really important also when we talk about crunching and also startups, it's that you know it's difficult to, especially when you have no funding, it's it's difficult to get something off the ground if you don't work hard. But I think there's a difference between the expectations and the pressure to work hard and having an environment where you know where you have common goals that you work for and a very high desire to to meet that like to to to, the, to do the best you possibly can just because it's cool to do so more or less. And I think that very much drove us uh, also in the early days of the company. Obviously this is also now yeah 15 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. All of us were also young. So it was basically, and it, it, we were friends. So from that perspective, everything just evolves around the company. And and obviously, but it doesn't feel like somebody is sending an email from, like you're probably sending an email telling you that you have to hit this deadline and you just have to work harder. That's not that's not how you feel when you are in a small team trying to achieve something where everybody um, feel that there's a sense of personal fulfillment in, in, in what you're doing. And I think that's exactly what it is about as founders in the beginning of, in a company life cycle is to 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 have people buy into this and feel that they are part of something that that is greater that's going to be awesome that's very much drove the culture of the company as well and then later stages of the, of the culture then you know at some point i think for us it was when we were about 
I would say 50 people or so. Then you start thinking about, okay, the values that we run this company on, how do we actually communicate these values? It's because it's not like you, you start a company and then you have, have no values in the companies because you do, because everything you do, that's a representation of a value, if you will. But formulating them into concrete values that this is us as a company, this is how we want to work and agreeing on the formulation, like how to formulate it. Uh, I think that happens for us in like a company, brand promise, core values, putting it on a post that had happened for us when we were about 50 people, I would say. But I feel very much that these things were just things that we were, of course, we discussed them, but it was pretty clear to us that when we wrote them down, that's how we had been operating the entire time. And I think if I were to do a startup, then I, then, then probably I would have these things in the back of my mind more as like as something that could be formulated more easily in the future. But so I would be more aware of them because I would understand how they are important at a later point. But, but honestly, they don't really matter uh, until you are a certain size and worrying about it until you succeed to be at the size where it actually matters, I think is irrelevant. How did you develop those communication skills back in the day into like when you hit the 50 people, how did that start? So for us, it, it was, I mean, initially it's like, okay, now we're a certain size. Should we have these things? And we looked at what other people were writing on their website. And, and it was all like, to us at least, it feels, because this is also one of the things that I think it's pretty obvious that when a company just writes things down just to show that they have you know, some core values, but they are so generic that they don't really make any sense. We've been looking at how other companies did it, and we felt that that was a little bit you know, too generic and didn't really resonate with us. And then it was not really until a friend of mine, he recommended me to read a book called Scaling Up, where they kind of give you a framework to how to formulate these things. And we actually used that as, as a starting point for, for how to start working with, with strategy uh, in the company. Now we have our own, I guess, adopted method based on that. Uh, so it's not exactly the same as it was used uh, back in the days, but, but that was a huge source of uh, inspiration for us. You still feel that you're developing as a communicator even nowadays? The thing that is uh, certainly different when you grow as, as a company is the way that the teammates, employees, they, they, they perceive you. Because when you are 250 people, then then also, especially I felt that when we came back from Corona, where we hired almost 100 people and you hadn't seen any of them in, in person and many of them because you don't direct, directly interact with them. I actually hadn't met them in person. And then you can feel there's a distance and and you kind of have to break that that barrier because some people and especially some cultures, they have a certain perception of what a CEO is and how it should be. And I think that's for me been... That's a continuous learning experience, how to um, be better at uh, breaking down that barrier because I don't want us to be a top-down organization. I want us to be a, a very flat organization. And it is difficult to continue to being flat and communicate in the same way because as you grow, people, they put more and more meaning into the things that you don't say or say in a different way or whatnot. And so that that's something I continue to try to prove at. What have you seen as the moments where you've learned the most and that led to you becoming an even better CEO? So I'm not, I'm not sure I'm the kind of person that believes that's a one, one single event that is the root cause of any major transformation. I mean, you usually it's just one 
single thing that we remember and then we kind of glorify that moment and say okay then there's a huge shift that happened but one general thing that has made my professional life as an entrepreneur much more enjoyable i think was was relatively early on in, in our startup phase and it was to accept that although although you can do everything in your power to succeed there's a lot of external circumstances that you cannot really control so no no matter how good you are at executing against something then you can still fail so coming to terms with the fact that you cannot control everything, even though that enabled me to appreciate the privilege of, of getting the opportunity to building my own company in the first place, having a feeling that even if we fail, we have still learned and have fun and enjoyed the process. Because I think having that, I guess, calmness, not stressing out when you can meet payroll and figuring out how to scramble things and then make it work after all, um, having the calmness to accept that, okay, this can happen again. That also made me much better at handling that pressure, I guess it is, especially in, in, in the early days. So, so that's, that's one, one thing. I think if, if, so the question again was how to become a better CEO, right? Yeah. Like those moments where you, where you learned the most out of that situation. Yeah. So firstly, having, having general self-development goals where you challenge yourself to become better and not just in relation to being the CEO. I think that is important for me. And I think that's. That's like things that in your everyday life that you can do better that helps you continue trying to evolve both your personal relationships or your work relationships and, and so on. I think when it comes to achieving this in the work context, I think the most important aspect is to listen and take feedback from the people around you, but also make sure that you seek to get this feedback. And again, as I was saying before, this is something that, that I'm working hard with now, being seeing us growing and growing, how to to communicate at the right level in, in different situations and making sure that I listen and also seeking the feedback of the people I work with. And ultimately, I think this is the way of becoming better at both leading and inspiring people to, to do a great job. And, and then second, for me, at least, I have a great curiosity of, in, in learning how things could be done differently, both talking to industry peers, understanding how they're operating and, and what they're focused on. I think that's always uh, something that inspires me. And then lastly, I think one, now I mentioned the Rockefeller habits or the, the scaling up book as, as one of the things that, that has um, impacted how we've done things in the company. But the one thing that I really enjoy is reading a lot. When I read, this is when I find the time to reflect and try to think about how things could be different. And growing a company like Tactile from a small startup to struggling to pay our salaries to a growth engine that's, that is trying to capture more market share has required us to basically rethink everything uh, in the organization and how we've done thing and things uh, several times. In the beginning, from, for instance, from a, from a tech point of view, you hack things together to make it work, to try to see, to, to bring the company forward. And then at one point you realize, okay, uh, now we need to have you know, certain standards for how we do our codes, uh, code, and we have to manage our code base in a certain way and we have to have processes and so on. Otherwise, this is, I mean, we're gonna have a big problem in a couple of years. So so it's both on the technical part we have to rethink, but also on how we manage the organization and how the organization is laid out. Obviously, like the reading part is one of the things that can be sometimes difficult to difficult to get done because it the payoff is never like immediate. And especially if you have, a, have an inbox that is never ending, then it can be hard. But I think that's ultimately why I've seen the biggest improvement in, in our company and also in the way I've dealt with certain situations. Hey, I wanted to move into talking about the, the games side of things. You guys have had immense success with games like Lily's Garden, Penny and Flow. Can you talk about how you start new projects at Tactile and 
what have you learned about creating success with like a new project, a new game? So, I mean, high level, we're completely focused on on casual puzzle space. So that's kind of where we narrow down. This is where we want to develop product, product within this channel. And I think like back in the days, it's not back in the days, it's also the case now. I mean, if you're doing first person shooters, you should, you're building up a pipeline of capabilities, design capabilities and so on to do a certain and switch shifting to a, to a different type of genre that is like a huge switching cost. That's not how it used to be in the early days of the App Store. You know, we would do one project that we felt was fun and then the next time we would do something completely different. But but as the App Store and the market has matured, I think there's a huge need to, if you want to build capability as a team, you need to focus exclusively on one genre. That's why we are, we've chosen uh, one channel, which is Casual Puzzle. So everything we do when we start a new product, it, it is working to become the leading puzzle gaming company on mobile. I believe the one thing as a company we, we do better than anyone is production. If give us the same resources as, as anybody else and, and we will produce better quality faster. Basically, this brings us down to, and I also think that's one of our fundamental values. I really truly believe that that we will produce more efficiently and better better quality. And then there's the whole thing of timing to market and, and so on, which we cannot really control, but we can really control making awesome products. Our process is we look at the market. We think about the obvious things that we want to improve in our space, both either in one of our own games or one of our competitors' games. And based on that, we start concepting, bringing the first playable to market. And in the process of between concept and playable, we do um, surveys, focus group testing, and so on. And then eventually we we, we narrow down this and start building a product. And then we test it like anybody else in the soft launch and so on. What is the tactile way of playtesting your own games and giving feedback to the teams? Are there some ways that you've figured out the, what's the most successful format of giving feedback? But also, like, do you have certain kind of ways that you, you might kill a project in the early stage, like the feedback and those kind of decision-making points? So super hard usually in gaming. To be honest, we don't really have a, it's, it's not rocket science, our process. I mean, we use both playtesting and we use focus groups a lot. And, and we have a dedicated team for doing user research. I don't really think that that we have anything besides, I have anything to add besides what's already established the best practices of this. I mean, the one thing I think you should be aware of in the current market is that the way to analyze soft launch data is changing. The market becomes more and more mature. So you have to polish more and more. So the numbers you will see in something now compared to five years ago, I think that has changed. But it's not like we have, then we release internally to the company and then everybody has an opinion and then we change based on that. That's not how it is. We run it as a small team and we have a couple of internal stakeholders and we use focus groups and then we release it as a sole project candidate. Do you ever think about like that there could be a way to actually like have more like frameworks for decisions or is it very much like the teams can make their own call? And you basically give them that freedom. How how much do you think about that that independent team model? Like, is it like de facto for you? So one one thing that I think is often neglected when you talk about when teams and independent decisions and so on is there's a huge difference between doing a new project, developing a new IP and a, and a new game, versus being in live ops on an existing games and. The people that might do extremely well in one context might not do so well in the other context. So that that is one of the things, especially when we grow as a company, seeing like, okay, moving this person, which is 
freaking awesome in in a live up setting than moving them in 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 in, in a setting where you know, we build and then we test and then if it doesn't work we throw everything away again. It, it it can be it's a very different psychological profile you have to have as an individual to to embrace that process. So that's that's one thing to be aware of when when you have these self-managing teams that 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 you need to you need to set the team that appreciates the process that and then also I think there needs to be a clear vision of of the products. And in our case, it's it's been more or less the same team that's been doing all our games. Me, myself being part of it, my uh, co-founder being part of it, and a couple of other key people being part of it. We have grown that team you know, a bit, of course, since we, we started. The, but it's basically been the same team that's been doing the project inception. Especially in the current markets, it's very hard to expect people to come up with something that is both fun and hits the perfect slot in 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 the market mix and can be also has has good cpis and whatnot it's a lot to put on 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 a small team so i think there needs to be some high level at least in our case some high level direction this is what we're going to try and this is this is uh, the market we want to go after and this is like the concept high level we want to go for yeah does that make sense yeah it does that's like just double clicking on this idea if there are game concepts that are originating from inside the organization that people are excited about. Do you ever think about like these kind of game jams? Does it make sense for a company like Tactile to, to, to set up small teams at all? Or like if you have the centralized new initiative team, no, it would be I great mean, to hear your thoughts on that. That's not how I think about it. I think about us as doing a very relatively limited genre of things. And you can do that. And we're going to do that extremely well. And then it actually, when you lock down this to this is our design space, then there's still a lot of creativity you can put on top of that. I think one of the, so one, one way to answer this question is also back in the days when we were a small company, and especially that's also one thing that people don't talk about that much, but when you are bootstrapping a company, maybe not paying market salaries, then it's also, you can't just recruit anyone you want. So you you kind of have to make compromises. And one of the compromises I think we did early on was that some of the people we hired, especially on, on, on the programming side, they didn't really care much for the type of games we were doing. Whereas, and eventually these people has left the company to other things. So that's, that's awesome for them. But if you joined, let's say, Tactile five years ago, was pretty clear what we were going to be doing. So if you didn't want to do a casual puzzle, then probably we're not the company for you. So that also takes away some of that expectations that some employees might have of, you know, we work on this project, but then the next project is going to be this awesome uh, adventure RPG. That's that's not going to happen because it doesn't make sense from, from a high-level business or creative perspective. We want to be the best at what we do. We need to continue focusing on that one thing. And then there's still multiple iterations of how how we can be better, different angles of how we can be better at what we're already doing. Amazing. Interesting insights for sure. So I wanted to ask you about celebrating with the team. What are some moments where you felt that it was very meaningful to have a celebration of something that happened with the team? Yeah. This is a bit embarrassing, but this is I mean, this is actually I guess it comes back to the ethos of the company and you as a founder. But to be honest, this is this is probably the thing that personally I'm also the worst at and celebrating success in general. I mean, for me personally, I never really feel that I've won until I clearly beaten our direct competitors. But but then again, to be fair, once we do that, then probably I would have a new goal 
and then I wouldn't really feel the excuse to sell. I mean, and that that is obviously not how you should lead a team, but that's just just I guess one of my shortcomings and as an individual. So we haven't been that good at celebrating. But, but we're getting better since I'm not the only one around anymore. So so that's good. But obviously, celebrating celebrating game anniversaries makes a lot of sense. I mean, reaching certain production milestones, you know, target conditions on on our life of teams. That's something that that should be celebrated and is you know as important to celebrate as, for instance, the creative achievements. Yeah, there's a there was an interesting thing happened to me last year. I was visiting Vasa, where I'm born like sort of hometown, meeting some friends first time since like 20 years ago. And there was one guy who was saying, yeah, you're, you're super successful. And I was like, I don't really feel like that kind of thing. I don't know what that means. And I'm still thinking about today that why do I feel that way? If there has been like success with like, with next games, what we did, stuff like that, it's still like, is it the hunger of an entrepreneur that keeps you sort of toned down and that you can't really like see that by yourself? I don't know. No, I, I definitely think it's like for me personally, and now I'm talking about myself, but it's not, again, it's not the smartest strategy as a company, but, but I, I, when I have achieved something, I just look at the next thing I have. And then I just feel that, that yeah, that's the next goal. And that's very much how I, I operate. Yeah. So that, that so I, can, I can completely relate to that. And I think both as a company and also personally getting both as a company, we're getting better at, you know, taking like taking one step back and looking at, okay, we're actually doing pretty well. You know, we, we deserve to celebrate whatever it's at, at a Christmas party or whatnot. But it is, it is hard when you are into day to day of the things that you haven't achieved yet. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Yeah, it is tough. Before we go to the final questions, I, I wanted to ask you about meeting culture at Tactile. How do you, guys get the most out of meetings do you have a certain way of how approaching to people to set up meetings do you have a management team do you have a board meetings advisor wiser meetings team meetings how do you go about meetings i mean the the best way of making meetings efficient is to not have them so what i mean by that is that trying to keep them short and making sure that that you excuse the people that are not relevant to the meeting and also enable a culture where people do not wait for approval in a meeting to take an action. I think that's 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 super important. And also I'm reminding people that we shouldn't just have meetings for the sake of having meetings, especially with, with COVID. I think at least there's this thing, then you would invite people to a meeting that was not really relevant. And then people, they maybe sit and do other work while fo- like following a meeting that's just not, not that, that, that is just not efficient. And it's not, it's just a distraction for everyone. So you should try to avoid that. One of the ways of, of doing that is that in general has a few me- as few meetings as possible that's about reporting, uh, but focusing on, on the problems that, that can be solved. So that's also how our leadership meetings, the leadership team are structured. They're mostly about asking others in the leadership team on advice for how to deal with a certain problem rather than reporting on, on a status or a success. And then when it comes to production in general, besides having your data standups, uh, there should be really as few meetings as possible since decisions that should be made when decisions arises. And if you cannot make a decision rapidly on the production, uh, both quality and output will suffer. So schedule something to happen in three days or tomorrow or two days. That's unless there's a very good you know reason for that, it, it should be a no-go. Hey, final questions for you, Aspiron. What's your favorite book 
and why? I have many. Yeah, so of course, if you are if you're starting a gaming startup, you should you should have let the read like Game Software Development Startup, Creativity Inc. Those those kind of books. I think for me, so as I also mentioned earlier, my interest originally actually is about lean production in a software context. So one of the the companies that I've read a lot about is is Toyota. That continues to be a how they manage things continues to be an inspiration for me. So I think Toyota Carter is probably the best book written on Toyota. And I think everybody that is operating in larger life should read this book. And when you read it, you should think about the difference between managing our eye target and, and managing target conditions and what it will do to your product long term. You have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today. It's not one single event, but I think as we talked about earlier, the one thing that has definitely shaped my approach to both how we built the company and how we do things is, is my experience from working at Crytek and in, in AAA gaming. And two things, basically. Firstly, always trying to overachieve when it comes to quality and products. Being the best looking or the smoothest running product always pays off. So even though maybe not financially, then at the very least in a professional pride or in the future pipeline. That's one of the things think it's also something we, we try to strive for here, here at Tactile. And then secondly, having done an extreme amount of crunch when I was uh, working in AAA, then I've learned that that kind of environment, I don't want to be part of it. And also there's way smarter ways of, of working. So I think that's kind of been the two things that I encountered very early on that has shaped a lot of things and a lot of ways of, I think about things. Yeah. Basic stuff. Final question for you, Osbjörn. If there's entrepreneurs in the audience who are inspired by what you're talking about here, is there a way for them to reach out? I don't want to like make your inbox crazy or anything, but like if there's if there's some questions out there, people want to talk with you. What what would sure. be the, the best format? The best format would be LinkedIn. Hook me up on LinkedIn, and then then um, you can take it from there. Amazing stuff. Yeah, this this was so good. Good having you on the podcast. So many cool insights. I, I think the, the listeners will also pick a lot, lot from here. So thanks again for, for doing this. Thanks, Joachim. Always a pleasure chatting about these things with you. Thanks. All right. Take care, sir. See you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again to my guests for joining the show. If you have time, please go and sign up to our newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about. I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll... See you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.